A few years ago, I had a really interesting experience. I was speaking at a Worldview conference down at Grace Church in Eden Prairie, and uh, after the conference session that I had spoken at, uh, I was down in front of the platform uh, talking with people and answering questions, and uh, up from the crowd approached a, a guy who I hadn't seen in over 20 years. Uh, it was a friend of mine that I grew up with, uh, and I was shocked to see him there. Uh, his name was ComCom, and uh, we, we used to call him KK for short. ComCom was Laotian, and, uh, and I grew up with ComCom. He was a great friend of mine. We played sports together from the time we were little kids. We were good buddies in high school. But, uh, but ComCom came from a devout Buddhist family. And uh, when, when I say devout Buddhist, he, he was one of those Buddhist families. They would go to the temple regularly. They had shrines set up in their home. And, uh, and I just knew that, that ComCom was, was a faithful Buddhist. And he knew I was a Christian, and we were good buddies. And, and I had invited him to church over the years and to youth retreats and things. But, uh, but he had never come to embrace Jesus. He was, you know, their, their family tradition. We're Buddhist. So here I am speaking at this Christian Worldview Conference, and all of a sudden up comes ComCom, and he's got this big smile on his face. I recognized him right away, even though I hadn't seen him in 20 years. And I was like, ComCom, what are you doing here? And he's like, Jason, you're never going to believe it. I'm a Christian. And uh, I said, what? And uh, we caught up over 20 years of life. He had gotten married. His wife had become a follower of Jesus. She eventually led him to the Lord. Now their whole family was walking with Christ. And I tell you what, I was so just thrilled. I mean, overjoyed. I gave Cobb just this huge hug because here was this guy who for so many years I, I had loved as a friend. And now here he was, a brother in Jesus Christ. And uh, man, I don't know if you've ever had that experience in your own life uh, of seeing somebody come to faith in Christ. Maybe you run into somebody later on in life who, who you would have never thought they would come to Jesus. But when you see that transforming work in their life, the, the transformative power of God's amazing grace, man, there is nothing more exciting than to see the power of transformation that can happen when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, we're gonna look at another one of these powerful stories of transformation. It's a story found in Acts chapter 9, and it's probably the most famous, uh, most significant, uh, most powerful conversion story in the history of the world. Uh, certainly the most significant in terms of the, the impact of this conversion on the history of Christianity. We're going to look at the transformation of a guy named Saul. Saul, who was a hardcore, conservative, zealot, Jewish radical. I mean, this guy, he, he was about as hardcore in Judaism as you can get. And, and he hated Jesus Christ. He hated the church. He thought it was all a bunch of hogwash. He thought that people were being deceived and being led astray to follow a false Messiah. And so Saul had made it his mission in life to squash the church. We're, we're going to see some of that in our passage today. But Saul would have an, a radical conversion experience. This guy who started out as a professional persecutor of Christians, complicit in the murder of Christians, would ultimately become the greatest champion, the greatest evangelist of the Christian faith in all of history. And so we're going to look at this powerful story of transformation this morning. It's found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. And I want to read this passage for us today. And then I want to highlight three powerful truths that we see here in the life of the Apostle Paul. We're not so much going to break apart this passage. I want to read the passage for us. 
But, but what I really want to do is I want to look at the totality of Paul's testimony and how we can be encouraged and inspired looking at what God did in the life of the Apostle Paul. So uh, I'm going to use those names, Saul and Paul, interchangeably today. But again, we're talking about the same, the same person. So follow along. Uh, you can follow along on the screens or in your own Bible. But we're in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Remember, the last time we saw Saul was a couple chapters ago at the stoning of Stephen, the very first martyr of the Christian church. Saul was there. He was the ringleader of that event. In fact, he was holding the cloaks, the, the robes of the other men who were pummeling Stephen to death with stones. He hated the church. He hated Christianity. And so here is Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Remember, friends, the church is spreading at this point. There's persecution breaking out in Jerusalem. So the Christians have spread out to Samaria, to the wider reaches of Judea. Now we see they're even moving out into foreign countries, to Syria, to Damascus. And Paul is determined, I am going to stop this movement. So he gets permission to go and, and travel to Damascus to bring these Christians into prison. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I've heard much, much about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and, and they said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem uh, of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We, we hear this story so often, many of us who have grown up in the church, we, we're so familiar with this story that I think we often forget what an amazing, radical story of transformation this really is. I mean, this is incredible. You have this guy here who we see in our passage who so hated the church, was so committed to stopping the revolution of the gospel that he had gotten permission from the Jewish Sanhedrin, the religious ruling body, to travel to foreign lands to shut down Christian churches, to arrest Christians, to persecute Christians, to kill Christians if necessary in order to keep this movement from spreading. This was a man who hated Jesus and everything Christianity stood for. This was a man who believed he was doing God's will by stopping the spread of what he thought was a radical cult leading people astray. And yet here in our passage we see this incredible story of conversion. Here's this man who, who went from one day persecuting the church to soon after becoming the greatest champion of the Christian faith in the history of the world. The man who was more responsible than any other for the advance of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And friends, you need to ask yourself the question, how do you explain that radical transformation? You see, the first, story, the first thing we see in the story of the life of Saul this morning is we find here a powerful argument for the faith. A powerful argument for the faith. A few years ago, I was speaking out in Seattle, Washington, and as I was on the plane, I sat next to a, a young man who, who was about my age, and, and I noticed as he was sitting there that he was reading a book on Buddhism. And so, like, like Philip last week that we looked at in chapter 8, I thought, what a great opportunity, right? Let's take advantage of this opportunity. And so I asked this young man sitting next to me, I said, hey, tell me a little bit, what, what's the book you're reading all about? And he said, well, it's a book on Buddhism. And I said, well, that's interesting. Are, are you a Buddhist or what's the deal? And he said, well, no, I'm actually taking a class at the local community college here in town, and, and uh, I'm studying world religions and, uh, and then he went on to share how he was actually really curious about religion and had been exploring different religious options. And I said, wow, well, that's really interesting. And, and, uh, and so I mentioned to him that I was a pastor and, and obviously a follower of Jesus. Well, that opened up a whole door to conversation. And Matt, the young man sitting next to me, he asked me, he said, Jason, tell me something. 
He said, if you were to boil it down to, to the simple essence, I mean, to the basic facts, why do you believe what you believe as a Christian? He, he, he said, why, why have you chosen to follow Jesus out of all the other options out there? And I said to him, I said, Matt, well, that's easy. I can answer that in one word. I said, the reason I'm a Christian today is because of the resurrection. Resurrection. I said, I said, I've got a whole host of reasons why I believe Christianity is true. But when it comes down to it, the reason that I've chosen to follow Jesus is because I believe that the evidence supports the testimony that Jesus Christ was crucified, he was buried in a tomb, and three days later he rose victoriously, physically alive, conquering the grave. I said, it's because of the resurrection that I believe in Jesus Christ. I said, the resurrection separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. There's no other religion out there that, that even dares to make the claim that their spiritual leader, their founder, died, was buried, but came back to life and lives today. Only Christianity makes that claim. And Matt said to me, well, Jason, how do you know it's really true? And so we had a great discussion for like two hours flying to Seattle, sharing with Matt the, the reasons why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the most compelling reasons I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the testimony of changed lives, transformations that took place. People who formerly doubted Jesus or were skeptics of Jesus or like Saul even hated Jesus who later became committed champions of Christianity. You, you have the disciples, for example, who, who after, the after the death of Jesus, they flee. They're in hiding. They're thinking, look, they killed our Lord. Who's next? He, they're coming for us next. We're out of here. And so they go off and hide. And yet just a couple weeks later, where are they? They're standing in the middle of the temple courts boldly proclaiming that Jesus is risen, that he is the Savior of the world. Or you look at people like James, the brother of Jesus. The Gospels tell us that Jesus' own family thought he was nuts. I mean, can you imagine your brother walking around claiming to be the Messiah? This guy's off his rocker, right? And yet, James, one of Jesus' brothers, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So committed to his belief, his confidence that Jesus was risen from the grave, the king of the world that James was willing to go to his death for his faith in his brother as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then you have the Apostle Paul, right? Saul, this zealous Jewish persecutor of the faith who later becomes the world's greatest champion of Christianity. And, and it's this testimony of changed lives like, like we see in the story of Paul that's really compelling. Well, well, this young man, Matt, he, he was very interested in this. And, and he asked me an interesting question, though. He said, well, well, Jason, can't you explain Saul's transformation in other ways? I mean, maybe, maybe Saul had ulterior motives for converting to Christianity. Maybe there's other ways we could, we could explain this transformation. And, and so I, I thought, you know, maybe we should consider some of these other options this morning. Maybe Saul did have ulterior motives for converting to Christianity. Maybe he really didn't see Jesus risen from the grave. If you were here for our apologetics conference earlier this year, we had J. Warner Wallace, who's a former L.A. homicide cold case detective. 
And Jay Warner Wallace told us in one of his sessions, he said, there are always three motives for every crime or conspiracy. He said, they all boil down to three motives, money, sex, or power. Okay, money, sex, or power. That's the reason why people commit crimes. That's the reason why people get wrapped up in conspiracies. So, so let's look at that. Maybe Paul was motivated by money, sex, or power. Maybe that's what led him to leave his conservative, zealous Judaism to become a follower of Jesus. Well, does that make any sense? Was Paul motivated by money? Friends, what do we know about the Apostle Paul? This guy was an itinerant tent-making missionary for a movement made up primarily of peasants, paupers, and people who were considered to be the outcasts of society 2,000 years ago. Does that sound like a recipe for financial success? Probably not. Well, maybe Paul was motivated by sex. You know, maybe he thought, if I, if I join this Christian movement, maybe I'll get a little more action or something. Does that make any sense? Friends, think about this. Here's Paul living in the midst of Greco-Roman culture, a culture that was rampant with sexual immorality, and every form of perversion imaginable was readily accessible to him, and yet Saul, supposedly motivated by sex, leaves behind conservative Judaism, not for the licentiousness of the pagan culture that was there, but instead to join a movement that champions abstinence and heterosexual monogamy and marriage as the only appropriate means of human sexuality for God's people. Doesn't sound like a guy motivated by sex, if you ask me. Well, maybe Paul was motivated by power. Maybe he became a Christian and, and spread this resurrection story because he thought it would increase his prominence in the world. But friends, if Saul was motivated by power, he would have stayed right where he was. Saul had reached the, the pinnacle of power and influence as a Jew. He, he was a standout Pharisee among the Pharisees. He had access to the Sanhedrin. He, he, he could walk into the Sanhedrin and literally get permission from the Jewish religious ruling bodies to travel the world persecuting the church. He, he was a student of one of the greatest rabbis in history, a man named Gamaliel. Paul, Saul here, I mean, for a religious Jew at this time in history, this was as good as it got. He had attained the heights of power and influence. But, but no, supposedly Saul left all this behind, not for greater power, but for a life of persecution, suffering, and shame. A life of selfless ministry that would ultimately lead to his beheading in Rome. Doesn't sound to me like a guy motivated by power. Well, well maybe Saul was mentally unstable. Okay, well, maybe he was just, you know, he thought he saw Jesus resurrected, but maybe his, his mind just wasn't working right. Maybe he was schizophrenic or something. But friends, if Saul was mentally incompetent, the Jews would have easily discredited him. The Christians certainly would have, wouldn't have embraced him. They already thought he was crazy. Right? We saw in our passage this morning, verse 26, they were already skeptical of him. Why? Because he was breathing out murderous threats. He's killing people. They wouldn't have embraced him. They wouldn't have certainly not commissioned him as a missionary. In the Gentile world, who would have been persuaded by a crazy man? Maybe, maybe a handful of people, but not 
the thousands that ultimately turned to Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. Well, maybe the story of Saul was all just made up. Maybe it's just a big myth, a big hoax. Maybe the Christians invented the story of Saul as a way of propagating the claim of the resurrection. But friends, who would have invented the story of Saul? Luke? The early church? And if this was all an invention of the early church, just think how easy it would have been for the Jews to discredit this story. Here's a guy they claim, the Christians claim, is a part of the Sanhedrin. He, he's, he's buddies with the high priest. He's traveling the world persecuting the church. If none of this was true, the Jews could have easily pointed all of that out. This is baloney. They're making this up. We don't know a Saul. Friends, understand this today. There is not a single credible scholar in the world, Christian or non-Christian, who denies the historicity of the Apostle Paul. Even the world's most notorious critic of New Testament Christianity, Bart Ehrman, even Bart Ehrman acknowledges that the historical evidence for Saul, for Paul, is overwhelming. Okay, Saul was a real man. He, he had a real life. He, he transformed the world through his testimony of his vision of Jesus Christ. So then how do we make sense of Saul's conversion? Friends, I think there's only one credible explanation and it's what Paul himself tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Friends, Paul saw Jesus alive. And it was that vision of Jesus living physically alive when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus that transformed Saul's life in an instant. I, I can't go on persecuting the man who lives in front of me and speaks in front of me and identifies with his church as, as Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was that vision of Jesus risen from the grave that totally changed everything for Saul and set him on a course that would lead him to become the greatest evangelist in Christian history. Friends, I think Saul is a powerful argument for our faith, the truth of our faith. But secondly, we also see in the life of Saul a testament to God's grace, an incredible testament to God's grace. You know, have you ever thought about why did God go through all the hassle of converting a guy like Saul? This zealous persecutor and, you know, marching to Damascus, this big bright light, the whole deal. Why even bother with all this? I mean, God had other people he could have used to, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, he had Peter and John and James. He had all these apostles. Why Paul? Friends, I think the reason why God went through this miraculous experience with Saul, appearing visibly risen in front of his own eyes 
was because God was looking for a model, a testament to his amazing grace to hold out to the world. To say to the world, look at if a guy like Saul can be saved, anybody can be saved. You see, Saul is a powerful testament to the amazing grace of God. When we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we can't make any excuse. You see, it might be easy to say, well, of course, you know, Peter or John, those guys followed Jesus. I mean, they've been following him for three years. But when we look at Saul, a man who hated Jesus, who hated Christianity, turning to faith, what a testimony. Anybody can be saved, friends. There's no one too far from God. There's no one too far gone. There's no lost causes. If a murderous persecutor of the church can be saved, anyone can be saved. Paul understood the power of his transformation. He understood the power of God's amazing grace in his life. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul shares his testimony. He says, I thank God who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Friends, if God can save the Apostle Paul, God can save anybody. No one is too far gone for the grace of Jesus Christ. See, Paul understood the power of the gospel. He understood the power of the simple testimony of the gospel. Simple passages that convey truth, like, like John 3.16, a passage that so many of us who have been in the church for a long time take for granted. But friends, think about how radically powerful these words are. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, should not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, that's incredible. And, and there's a word in this verse that stands out among all the others to me. There's a word in this verse that's one of the most powerful, most significant verses in the whole Bible. That word is whoever. 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 Whoever believes in him. Friends, that's a word that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. There's no other religion in the world that offers whoever, that anybody, no matter your background, no matter what you've done, may freely come and receive God's grace as a gift Friends, only Christianity says whoever. Whoever. I want to let you know this morning that God is still in the miracle business today. God is still involved in transforming hearts and changing lives. The, the same God who rescued Saul and brought him to faith is still transforming hearts and lives like that today. Friends, no one is too far gone for God. Whoever believes in him, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. I came across a powerful story just this week, a story that was published in Christianity Today. 
uh, about a man named Casey Diaz. Casey Diaz was a, a ringleader of a notorious gang, Mexican gang in South Central Los Angeles. He, he was responsible for numerous murders, countless robberies, and he was eventually caught by the police and sent to prison on second-degree murder charges. He said he was actually thankful because that was all they got him on. So he was sent to Folsom Security, a level four maximum security prison. And when they showed up at prison, the guards pulled Casey aside as soon as he got off the bus and they said, Casey, you're going to serve your time in solitary confinement. See, Casey was what was called a shot caller. And what that means is he was one of the gang leaders who determined who lived and who died. If another prisoner wanted somebody dead, they had to go to Casey and get his permission, and Casey would determine whether or not that guy got to live or not. And so because he was such a dangerous man, the guards at Folsom put him in maximum security. He spent 10 years in a cell 10 foot by 8 feet, no windows, no TV, no radio, no books. His only human interaction was a slot in the door where the guards would pass his food three times a day. He was such a violent, dangerous man. A few years into his sentence, Casey says he heard a voice outside of his door. It, it was the voice of a woman speaking in a thick southern drawl. And he could hear her talking to the guard outside the door. And he heard the guard say, well, you don't want to bother with that guy. He's, he's hopeless. Next thing Casey knows, he saw the latch, the, the metal latch at his door open. And he heard a voice speak through the latch of the door. Young man, I want you to know that God's going to use you one day. Casey thought, this, this is crazy. Who is this lady? And she said, I'm going to come back every month and I'm going to talk to you. And I'm going to remind you that God's going to use you someday. And so for months, this woman would come back and she would try to speak to Casey and Casey would cover his ears. He would roll over on his side, put a pillow over his head. He didn't want to hear it. He was a lost cause in his mind. But this woman kept coming and every time she came, she kept saying, Casey, God's going to use you someday. Casey says one day when she came, he was trying to muffle the noise of her speaking to him through the door. And so he rolled over on the side of his prison bed, his concrete bed, and he looked at the wall on the side of his prison, prison room. And there on the wall, he says he saw a movie playing on the side of the wall. A movie was playing on the side of the wall uh, of all of the events of his life. He saw everyone he had ever killed. He saw all the homes and families that he had robbed. And then as he watched this movie of the events of his life unfold, he said, I saw a man in a robe covered with blood carrying a big wooden cross. And he watched as this man carried this cross down the road and crowds of people around him were spitting on him and mocking him. And he watched as this man took his cross to the top of a hill where he was nailed to this cross. And Casey says that as I watched this scene unfold, the man on the cross spoke to me and said, Darwin, I'm doing this for you. See, Casey's real name was Darwin. No one else knew that. But the man on the cross said, Darwin, I'm doing this for you. Casey said he just broke down crying in the moment and he got on the floor. All he could think of was to get on his knees and he began to confess sin after sin after sin. And he says, every sin I confessed, it was like a load of bricks was taken off my shoulders. 
he asked the prison guard if he could speak to a chaplain, and a chaplain came in and shared with Casey that, Casey, you've been saved. What, what you're explaining is the power of the Holy Spirit. God's turned you into a new person. You're a new creation today. Casey served his time in maximum security. When he came out, his brothers in the gang found out he had turned to Jesus Christ, and he was beaten within an inch of his life for turning to Jesus. But he says it was all worth it because Jesus forgave me of my sins. Whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Friends, our God is a God of amazing grace. No one is too far gone for his transforming love. You might know somebody in your life today who you think is too far from God. You might think that they're a lost cause, they're a hopeless case, but friends, I want to tell you testimonies like Casey Diaz, testimonies like Saul, a maniacal persecutor of the church who would later turn into one of the world's greatest missionaries. Friends, testimonies like these should serve as a great encouragement to all of us today that no one is too far from God. There are no lost causes with Jesus Christ. And if you know people in your life today who you think are too far from God, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to pray for them. I want to encourage you to love them. And I want to encourage you to keep reaching out with the truth of the gospel and believe that we have a God who still does miracles today. Trust in God, hope in God, and never give up. Because God is in the business of saving people who are far from him. Lastly, this morning we see in the Apostle Paul a model for our race. A model for our race. In verse 15 of our passage, the Lord tells Ananias that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and all the children of Israel. Friends, Paul was chosen for service. And understand this this morning. When God saves people, he saves us for service. Salvation is not the destination. It's just the beginning of a grand adventure of living life in service to the king. So many people come to faith in Jesus and they think that's, that's the end, that's it, I, I've reached the pinnacle. No, friends, that's just the beginning. When God saves us, it's saving us for a purpose. It's saving us to join the grand adventure of sharing the hope of the gospel with the whole world, of living in service to the king. Friends, God has so many plans and purposes for each of us, just even beyond the act of salvation. God wants to use every single one of us to declare his glory. Paul understood that, and he lived his life as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. In Acts 20, verses 22 through 25, we find Paul's final words to the elders in Ephesus, a church that Saul had planted after becoming the missionary Paul. And, and Paul, speaking to the church in Ephesus, knew, in Ephesus knew that he was headed to Rome, where it was likely that he would be imprisoned and ultimately, most likely, lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. And so speaking to his friends in Ephesus, he says, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul says, look at all I desire is I want to finish the course. I want to serve Jesus faithfully to the end. I want to run my race so that I'm not disqualified. I want to honor Jesus each and every day. I want to live with him as my first priority. I want him to be my motivation. I, I, I want to run the race. I want to finish the course. See, Paul was a man who was motivated by his hope in the gospel. He was motivated by the transforming grace he had experienced in Jesus. And when he recognized the depravity of his sin and the amazing grace that he had encountered in Jesus. Friends, when you're living your life in the shadow of the cross, it's hard to say anything, but it's all for you, Lord. One of my favorite verses that the Apostle Paul shares in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, Paul says, not I, but Christ. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about the one who gave his life for me. Friends, Paul was motivated to honor Jesus, to run his race. And friends, what a great model for all of us to follow today. May we too embrace a vision of the cross like Saul, a vision of the cross that recognizes the depth of our sin, but the amazing grace of God lavished out on us that invites us to join in this grand adventure of sharing the hope and good news of the gospel with others. May each one of us here, like Paul, declare, no, not I, but Christ. It's not I who live, it's, it's Jesus who lives in me. He's the one who matters. And so no matter where I am in life, no matter what God's called me to, no matter how old I am, no matter what the future holds, not I but Christ. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for the powerful testimony that we have in the life of Saul and how you transformed his life and turned him into the Apostle Paul, the greatest champion of the early church, the greatest champion of the faith, Lord. God, if you can do a work like that in the life of a murderous man like Saul, who can you not save? We thank you for your amazing grace, Lord. We thank you that you came to rescue lost and sinful people. We thank you that no one is too far gone for your great love. And so, Lord, I pray that first and foremost, everyone here this morning might have received and embraced your amazing grace for themselves, that they might know you as their Savior and Lord that they too might experience the transforming power of your spirit at work in their life. Lord, I also pray for those lost people that all of us know, friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members, so many of us with, with lost one, people in our lives, people that we know and love and care for, 
God, may we never give up on them. May we pray without ceasing for them. May we hope against all odds that your transforming power might ultimately break through the hardness of their hearts so that they too might come to experience the joy of salvation. And Lord Jesus, may all of us live our lives, may we run our race just like Paul, looking to the cross, living in the shadow of the cross, declaring every day, not I, but Christ. He's our motivation. He's our priority. Lord, thank you for giving us the privilege of being a part of this grand adventure. May we be faithful champions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.